Good morning. Um, my name is Chris. It's very lovely to see you. Um, if we haven't met before, it would be lovely to meet you afterwards. Um, so let's, uh, let's pray before we look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you tell us of the future so that we can live today. Help us to understand what you say to us today so that we would trust you and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, What would you say gives you most hope for the future? And what worries you most about the future? Uh, Last December, there was a a poll was published, and um, the poll had asked those two questions to 105 uh, experts. I don't think they meant kind of experts in hope, wasn't that? But uh, kind of seemed they were experts in technology, science, that kind of thing. And what gives you most hope for the future? And what most worries you about the future? At least a couple of interesting things came from that poll. Uh, One was this. um, Out of 105 experts... Only four of them said that they did not have a hope. That's interesting. Having a hope uh, is normal. That's common. Almost everyone has one. Clearly, it's, kind of, it's very hard to live without a hope. I think we'd agree, perhaps. Uh, the second interesting thing was, that, um, was what they said gave them hope. Uh, every answer was about some kind of man-made hope. So answers like... Um, Human ingenuity, uh, human kindness, compassion, social justice, technology, and uh, can you guess what the, the top answer was? Can you guess? Young people. There you go. Young people, you know, uh, young people's energy and activism, that kind of thing. So almost everyone has a hope in some way, and many hopes are man-made hopes. What gives you most hope for the future? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Uh, That question is a question we're thinking through over the next uh, couple of weeks on Sunday mornings because um, it's really the question posed to the people of Israel who first heard this book that we read from, uh, the prophecies of Isaiah, and written about kind of 700 700 BC, give or take. Um, They were a people who, uh, like us, needed a real hope. And perhaps, like us, they weren't really sure where to get it. I will look at this um, in three parts. Um, There's a man-made mess, a righteous king, and a transformed world. So so first, uh, a man-made mess. Uh, The the people in Israel's time, they were in a man-made mess that they couldn't get out of. Uh, Our first few sermons in this series kind of really brought this home, actually. Uh, On the surface... Israel's problem was uh, they were threatened constantly with invasion. And the superpowers of the day were unstoppable. They were huge. But their problem wasn't so much about their lack of military power. It went far deeper than that. Deep down in their hearts, they were just incapable of carrying out the way of life that God had given them. They were proud. They thought they knew better than God's. They chose other gods to worship, and it got them in a complete mess. So God, God kind of allowed them to be threatened with invasion as a way to kind of shake them up, really. You know, hey guys, what are you doing? Come on, come back to me. I'm sure we all know that kind of uh, getting out of a mess that you've made can be very, very hard. 
very hard. You know, do you get those moments in your head when you know, you know you've made a mistake, but turning around from that, or the thought of admitting that, that's, that's hard, isn't it? The people at this time, they could not get out of their mess. And what's worse is that their kings had been just as dreadful as they were. Don't you just, um, don't you just wish there were a thing where um, whenever anyone becomes an important leader, uh, chief exec, chairman, prime minister, whatever it might be, that as soon as that happens, straight away, like magic, they become a better person. Wouldn't that be good? That'd be good, wouldn't it? All their limitations, everything they're bad at, plus their bad temper, kind of any tendency to be self-centered, that just floats away. That'd be great, wouldn't it? But we do not live in that kind of world. The people in Isaiah's time were in a man-made mess that they could not get out of. And their kings couldn't help them either. They were no better. But then we get Isaiah 11. This vision, this promise, this dream. It's a promise of a righteous king. Here, God promises the people, one day there will be a totally righteous king. Now this is really good news, of course, because um, this king is not a king who's just like the people with their faults. This king is righteous. He will know and do exactly what is right all the time. Now in verse 1, there's a kind of bit of plant imagery going on there. So um, this king, he's called a, a shoot, a branch from the stump of Jesse. What does that mean? Well, I mean, if you're in Israel at that time, that, that's a big relief, that description, actually. Uh, their recent kings, as I said, uh, were dreadful. Uh, but this promised king, well, he's going to be more like Israel's greatest ever king. That was David, whose father was Jesse. That's what it means by from the stump of Jesse. And there's more. This king will be anointed by God. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So this is it's not a man-made solution to the mess. This is God's solution. This king will have the spirit of God. Now that changes things. Um, has anyone seen the film um, Arrival? Has anyone seen that film? It was out a few years ago. Um, now, hear me out on this, but uh, in my opinion, the film Arrival is both a very profound film and it's also a film about aliens. Now, usually those two things don't go together, but I think it really does in this film. I think it's a great film. Uh, let me, the plot is uh, that the world is on the brink of nuclear war. And it's a mess. But then these aliens turn up and it's all very mysterious. What are they doing here? You know. Now, slight spoiler alert, but it turns out that the aliens have a gift that they want to give to the world. Their gift is a special language. It's not words, but, uh, words, but it's kind of circular symbols. It's all very cool, the way they do it. Anyway. And the point is that this language they give, it's amazing because it bridges together the past and the present and the future. So in fact, anyone who knows the language suddenly knows everything at the same time. The past, the present, the future. It's amazing. 
And the idea is that if world leaders kind of learn this language, then suddenly they'll avoid war because they'll know how to get along. They will know how to get every decision right. I wonder what you make of that. In one sense, I think the film is uh, really perceptive. Our human race is unable, as it is now, to rule the world in a perfectly right way. We know that. We are unable to do that. To do that, you need intervention from outside our world. In the case of the film, aliens. But you get the point. And Isaiah 11 says, yes, that's right. And here God promises that intervention from outside. This gift of a righteous king. Now this king, um, he promises, is far greater, of course, than the alien language. That was cool, but this is far greater, far greater. So look with me at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. So this king uh, will understand what's right and how to do what's right. And that's all because he knows God. He knows the Lord. In fact, he fears God. He, uh, he obeys him. He's loyal to God. If, um, thought experiment, if, if, if God is there and if you and I knew the mind of God perfectly, would we get in a mess in life? Well, we'd probably say, kind of, no, we wouldn't. And because we know what's right, so we probably wouldn't get in a mess. But it also depends on character as well. Do we have the character to follow through with what's right? I know I don't have that. But this king is different. Verse 3 says, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll love doing what God says is right. He has the right character. Isaiah goes on. He says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash round his waist. Think of this king's character. He won't just judge by appearances like we do so often. He'll judge exactly what's right. Without impartiality against the poor, again like so we often do, he will deliver on what he judges at all times. Perfect moral integrity Perfect, steadfast loyalty. What a king this is. What a king it's described here. Now, if you'll excuse me, uh, kind of uh, just putting this in political terms, sort of, just for a minute. Um, this man here, this figure, this king, do you think you'd vote for him? Do you think he would? If this was his manifesto and you trusted him, I mean, would, would you vote for him? You would, wouldn't you? Surely that would be a good idea. And if you voted for him and he got in and you're waiting for him to take the reins of power, well, that would probably change how you felt about life. I know a mess, I'm in a mess right now, but look who's coming. 
Look who's coming. He's going to put things right. That would change your attitude, wouldn't it? I think it would. And here God promises this king to us. It's a promise. So we've seen a a man-made mess, and we've seen a, a promise of a righteous king. Let's just turn to the rest of the chapter. Uh, here we see the, uh, the effect of this righteous king. And it's this. It's a transformed world. A transformed world. We have here an extraordinary picture of just how completely this promised king will turn this world we live in into a perfect world. Uh, One feature of this is how his rule will transform nature. Uh, That's in verses uh, 6 to 9. So in this transformed world, um, predators and prey will not exist. Wolves will live with lambs, leopards with goats, calves with lions. There's no eating each other for lunch. And it's such a secure situation that who's leading them all? A little child, verse 6. And a total kind of absence of any violence, therefore of any fear too, it's a beautiful picture. Not least, it's a picture of paradise. There's nothing sinister here whatsoever. Children are even playing with snakes, in fact, verse 8. Uh, children and snakes. So, well, that's actually kind of biblical imagery to say that the earth has been under a curse for thousands of years, but the curse has gone by this point. The world is totally peace and perfection. And that's all because through God's righteous king, God pours out knowledge of God to every corner and crevice of the earth. The whole world. Did you see that in verse 9? Nothing will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Every corner and crevice of the world filled with knowledge of God. Nature is transformed. Here's an idea. The next time time you go to the sea or you watch a TV program about the ocean, you know, Blue Planet, that kind of thing, uh, the next time you do that, look at the water. Consider how vast it is, how full the ocean is. And think, wow, see how the waters completely fill the sea. It's completely full. That reminds me, one day the earth will be full of the knowledge of God. Completely full. Nature will be transformed. And that's not all that's transformed. Um, In verses 10 to 16, it's the peoples of the world that are transformed. Let's read verse 10. Verse 10 says this, In that day the root of Jesse... That's the same righteous king as before. He will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Next year, 2020, uh, it'll be the, the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Brilliant. Can't wait for that. That'll be fantastic. And uh, the opening ceremony, they're always good, but I think in Tokyo it's going to be just, it's, they'll do it really well. I'm, I'm sure that'd be brilliant. At that ceremony, opening ceremony, every country's team will parade in with their flags 
and they'll come to stand under the Olympic flag. That's what they do, isn't it? And then the torch will be lit. Hurrah, let the games begin. Brilliant. What Isaiah speaks about is like that, but on a far deeper and bigger scale. The nations of the world will rally, not to the Olympic flag, but to the righteous king. They'll rally to him. He is he's so right and so perfect that every nation will want to live under his good rule. Not just Western nations, not just Eastern nations, all nations. All nations will want to do that. And that does include exiles in verse 12. Uh, that's the people of Israel who had been and would be kind of scattered into other countries. It would also include bitter enemies, verse 13. The jealousy and hostility of the tribes of Israel, that hostility would just vanish, vanish. There's no more civil war under this king. His resting place will be glorious. What a wonderful promise that is. Under this king, the nature of the world will be transformed and the peoples of the world will be transformed. At the beginning of the talk, I I asked the question, what gives you most hope for the future? Now, what is it for you? Would it be a a man-made hope of some sort? Or would it be the hope given by God that we've seen today? And understand, um, of course, if for some of us, not least if we're kind of not familiar with the Christian faith, that for some of us, I don't know, what we've heard today sounds attractive, I guess, but is it just make-believe? I mean, come on. Isn't it just something to make us feel better without having an, in- an ounce of reality? Well, I understand that question. What, what to make of that? Well, consider, if you will, the the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who this chapter ultimately describes. The New Testament is very clear about that. When you consider Jesus' life, you see, I believe, a, a righteous man in quite the way described here today. For example, when he came to trial... No one could make any accusation stand against him. That's extraordinary. No one could find any dirt on him. No dodgy secrets. And as you read what Jesus did in his life, what do you see? You see his authority in declaring what was right and wrong. You see his uh, razor-sharp perception of what was in people's hearts. Now, if, if... if you read about that Jesus and you see there kind of a unique man, a perfectly righteous man, the kind of man you think should never exist, then at least consider that Isaiah 11 is it's, it's not make-believe after, after all. Do consider that. For those of us here this morning who, who would say we follow Jesus Christ, of course we're still waiting for what's to come. His perfect, transformed world. It's not here yet. We know that. And waiting is not always easy, is it? Maybe you're feeling the weight of that at the moment. Maybe you're feeling, I I want that perfect world, but I want it now. It's hard, isn't it? 
There are so many kind of chances to kind of practically put our trust in all sorts of things that will not deliver the world we want. Whether it's, you know, money, security, safety, career, even climate change action. Well, that's surely a good thing, but it won't deliver the world we want. Nothing can. Everything falls short. Maybe we use those things to come try to create our own personal little perfect world in the here and now, our, kind of, our little bubbles of security, a little perfect life, immune from the outside. But I've noticed that in myself. Maybe you've realized you've been doing that and that you need to repent and turn away from those things and turn back to God to trust him rather than trusting those other things. In the New Testament, uh, in the letter to the Romans, um, uh, the author Paul um, directs his readers to this very passage, to Isaiah 11. Um, He says, yeah, you need to trust. Christians, you need to trust. And he says this, and hopefully it will come on on the screen so we can see it. Uh, There it is. So Paul says this to Christians. He says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And then a bit later, again, Isaiah says, Isaiah, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the person of Jesus Christ, the root of Jesse has sprung up. He has risen to rule over the nations. He's in charge, and later he'll transform the world. He's promised to do that. So put your hope in him. Trust him. And through him, the God of hope will fill you with his hope. Trust him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what we've seen today. Father God, whatever our situations, we pray that you would help us to put our hope, not ultimately in anything of this world, but in you, our God and creator and in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can have a wonderful, real hope through him. And so help us to trust him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.